You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, well today we are taking our next step through the letter of 1 Corinthians. Uh, This is part three in this set of sermons uh, through this particular letter, and we are to chapter two. Uh, So chapter two is what you need to have out and open there on your lap. And uh, just by way of observation, you just heard the chapter read. And one of the things that uh, is just interesting to note right off the top is that there are no commands in 1 Corinthians chapter two. There is not a do this or a do that. Uh, There are no commands to obey. Uh, But in this text, there are some glorious truths for us to behold. And that's really what I want to set before you today. This is not a do this, do that sermon. It is a, can we behold these things together? Can we see these things together, these beautiful truths in this particular chapter? And I want to set two things before you, uh, two things just to sort of uh, help us work through this text. And here's the first one I want you to see out of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You need preaching. You need preaching. That's the first thing I want you to see. And I, I, you know, in a lot of ways, it feels like a little bit of a privilege for us to think about preaching together for a moment. Because when we gather together, this is one of the main things that we're doing. Probably the central thing that we're doing is this very thing. So, so it's good for us to think about the what's and the why's and the how's of preaching together. And if I were assigned um, to teach a class on preaching, and I had to pick a few texts in the Bible to do the teaching on preaching from, this would be one of my texts. I would look at the first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And part of what this text is reminding us of is we need preaching. And it does this by highlighting and showing us several truths about preaching. Uh, Here's the first thing that we see about preaching in this text is we see the the centrality of preaching, uh, the centrality of preaching. And by centrality, I mean the importance of it. So our text today is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, kind of the whole chapter. Now, when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, you might just, in your mind, think and draw a line back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. Verse 17, Paul says it, then he goes on a little bit of a tangent, and then he comes back up and picks up that same exact thought to start chapter 2. So I want to just point back to chapter 1, verse 17, and just let Paul remind us of the centrality of preaching. Paul looks at the church in Corinth and he said, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach. Now, now that's a big statement, right? That's Paul saying that even the sacraments are not central. They're important. We want to do those things, baptism and communion, and we gather together and worship Jesus, but they're not central to what we're doing. He says, no, Christ sent me to preach to herald the most important truths in the universe. That's what Jesus sent me to do. And why shouldn't uh, preaching be central to our time together? Uh, Think of the word of God like kindling for our enjoyment of God. That's what it is. It's like a fire starter for for our enjoyment of, of Jesus. And that's what we're doing when we gather. We are enjoying Jesus. We're worshiping Jesus. We we worship Jesus by enjoying Jesus. This is what we're doing when we gather together. And if the word of God is kindling for our enjoyment of God, then what better way to center our time together when we gather together than to open the word of God and to hear it heralded? That's that's what we're doing when, when we come together. This is why it's the centerpiece of our gathering. Paul's showing us the centrality of preaching. 
For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach. This text also shows us the content of preaching. Like, what did Paul preach? So, so he's preaching, but, but what does he preach? What is the content of a Christian sermon? Right? What, what is the message? What are the sacred truths that Paul is heralding? And you see it in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 2. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Look at what Paul says. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the content. For I decided, that's, that's Paul saying, I have made a choice. There's a million things I'm curious about. There's a lot of things that I know about. There's a lot of things that I could tell you. But, but when I stand up to, to preach, I, this is what I'm after. Paul decided, here is the one thing I'm going to make known among you. It is nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And when Paul says Christ and him crucified, uh, that is shorthand for the entirety of the gospel. That's shorthand for the whole wisdom of God. It's not Paul just saying, hey, I'm just going to talk about his death. Jesus, it's not that. It's shorthand for the whole of the person and the work of Jesus. When he says Christ and him crucified, it's Jesus in his perfect humanity, in his humble obedience to the Father, even to a bloody cross. It's Jesus offering himself as a perfect substitute for sinners. It's Jesus and his sin-defeating, Satan-defeating, and death-defeating death. It's our union with Jesus, not just in his death, but in the power of his resurrection that unleashes new life in us. It's the glory of Jesus' ascension and enthronement where he sits right now at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us. It's our communion with God that we experience now through the Holy Spirit. It's that much-anticipated face-to-face meeting with Jesus that's coming for all of those who know Jesus, where we will see Jesus face-to-face and be forever changed by him. This is what Paul means when he says, I preach Christ and him crucified. This is the content of the sermon. This is the message. This is what he's preaching. Preaching proclaims the wisdom of God. It is holding up and exalting the person and the work of Jesus. I love how one commentator says it. It says, preaching proclaims a bloodied mass of crucified flesh, hardly recognizable as human, and says to the world, there is the healing of all of your wounds. There is the satisfaction of all of your desires. There is the wisdom for every question you ask. There is the victory that will open up a new future for the whole universe. That's the content of Christian preaching. Paul says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and and him crucified. Now, when Paul says that, he does not mean uh, that that I'm never going to talk about anything else. Like I'm never going to talk about marriage. That's not what Paul means. Paul talks about marriage. It just means that when he talks about marriage, he wants people to see through marriage to to the crucified and risen Christ. Paul talked about money, right? But but Paul wants people to see through a call to sacrificial sacrificial generosity all the way to the crucified and risen Christ, right? This is what Paul means when he's saying nothing but Christ and him crucified. He he means that that, here's my goal in preaching. I want to help everyone see through everything to the crucified and risen Christ. That's what I want to do. 
I want people to see Jesus in it all. The crucified and risen Jesus in it all. This is what Paul was preaching, the crucified and risen Christ. Now, let me just stop and apply this for a moment. This is a decision we all have to make with Paul. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. That's a decision we all need to make. Uh, We can all know and we can talk about a lot of different things in our life. But every follower of Jesus needs to, along with Paul, decide, here's what my life is going to be about. Here's what I'm going to be about. I'm going to be about helping people see through everything to the crucified and risen Jesus. But beholding, I, I want everyone to see through everything to that end, all the way to Jesus. Have you made that decision? That's what my life is going to be about. Like when I'm at work, I may know a lot of things, I may talk, but this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to help everyone see through everything all the way to Jesus. When you're at school, when you're in your family, when you're with your friends, trying to help everyone see through everything to the crucified and risen Jesus. That's the content of preaching. This passage shows us the culture of preaching, the the ethos, the vibe. Like, what is it that a preacher needs as he's preaching? And this passage shows us that preaching a crucified Christ requires a crucified person. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 is one of the scariest verses in the Bible for me. Listen again to what it says. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, and then he gives the reason, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul is saying here that it is possible to preach the cross in a way that empties the cross of its very power. That is possible to do. And not only is it possible, it happens when a preacher views preaching as a platform for their performance. When preachers view preaching as a platform for their pride to be on display. When preachers view preaching as a platform for their coolness to be seen and enjoyed by other people. For the applause of other people. For them to be seen and admired by people. And Paul is saying, no, preaching requires, or preaching a crucified Christ requires a crucified person. So let's just ask that question. Is, has our desire to be cool in the eyes of the world, to be awesome in the eyes of people, right? To be thought of well in the eyes of people. Has that been crucified in us, in me, in you? You, you could take this as an application to evangelism. I, when, when you're preaching Jesus, when you're presenting Jesus to another person in hopes that they're going to see Jesus and love Jesus and be saved by Jesus. Has this desire for for coolness in the eyes of the world, has it been crucified in you? One of our biggest problems in evangelism is that we want to be seen as cool more than we want people to see Christ. That's one of our main problems in evangelism. We're just so enamored by what other people think of us. Do we look good in their eyes? Are, are we admired? Do they see us as, as, as good? And Paul is saying, no, we've got to die to that. Preaching a crucified Christ requires a crucified person. Has that happened in you? It happened in Paul. 
Chapter 2, verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the wisdom of God. And then he says this, With lofty speech or wisdom, just to kind of show my smarts. I didn't come that way. Verse 3, And I was with you in weakness, in weakness, and in fear, and in much trembling. He said, listen, there's nothing impressive about me here. I came with weakness and fear and much trembling. Verse 4, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. I didn't come to you with a lot of fancy speech. That's not the way I came. I love how one commentator says it. He said, Paul was a gifted, articulate, careful, passionate, learned, fascinating man, but he knew the difference between preaching Christ and showing off. He knew the difference between winning disciples to Christ and attracting followers to himself. He knew the difference between getting the gospel out and branding his own recognizable way of saying it. He knew the difference between the Spirit, preaching out of the Spirit, and preaching out of the flesh. Paul knew that. He he did know that. Charles Spurgeon is one of my favorite guys in church history. And a guy named Arnold Dallimore wrote a biography on Charles Spurgeon. And in that biography, he shares this story. And I just want to tell you this story from that biography. He said, during the 1880s, a group of American ministers visited England, prompted mainly by a desire to hear some of England's most celebrated preachers. Who are like the best preachers around here? And I want to go listen to them. So on a Sunday morning, they attended the city temple where Dr. Joseph Parker was the pastor. And some 2,000 people filled the building and Parker's forceful personality dominated the service. His voice was commanding, his language descriptive, his imagination lively, and his manner animated. The sermon was scriptural. The congregation hung upon his words and the Americans came away saying, what a wonderful preacher is Joseph Parker. What a wonderful preacher. Then in the evening, they went to hear Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. The building was much larger, the congregation was more than twice the size, and Spurgeon's voice was even more expressive and even more moving, and his preaching was noticeably superior. But they soon forgot all about the great building, the immense congregation, and the magnificent voice. They even overlooked their intention to compare the various features of the two preachers. And when the service was over, they found themselves saying, What a wonderful Savior is Jesus Christ. Now, that is the lingering note a sermon should have on a human heart. Not what an awesome preacher, but what an awesome Savior. Just beholding the glory and the beauty of Jesus. This passage shows us the centrality of preaching, the content of preaching, the culture of preaching. And it shows us the point of preaching. Look again at verses 4 and 5. Paul says, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, here's what he means by demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He means, this Paul, when I preached, people started getting saved. Life started getting changed around here. That's what it means uh, to, to preach or, or to, to impart the wisdom of God in the demonstration of the Spirit and power. Paul preached, people changed. Uh, Paul's looking at the church in Corinth and saying, hey, church, do you remember what happened around here? Do you remember how all this went down? He, he said, I was there for 18 months, and I, do you remember what I was doing in those 18 months? I was preaching Jesus. And you remember what happened? You got saved. 
Do you remember what happened? A church got started. Yeah, do you remember what happened? Your life was changed. You went from death to life, lost to found, under the wrath of God to inside the family of God. That's what happened. And this is the point of preaching. Or, or he, he says it this way in verse 5. Here's another way to say the point of preaching. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. That's the goal of preaching. It's to expose everything our faith is resting on that's not Jesus. And by the way, our hearts are always drifting in that direction. Your heart, because it's got sin remaining in it. My heart, because it's got sin remaining in it. It's always trying to move the pile of faith in our heart over to other things, just to sort of diversify our options. So yeah, we can sprinkle a little bit of our hope on Jesus, but we're going to move a little bit of our faith and hope over here to these things too. And preaching is meant to expose all of those things that aren't Jesus that our faith is resting on. And then preaching is meant to hold up the person and work of, of Jesus, the wisdom of God, Christ and him crucified, so that our hearts will, will move back all of that, that faith that they've diversified, all of that faith, to move all of that faith back onto the solid rock that is the crucified and risen Christ. That's what preaching is meant to do. So in light of that, let me just apply this in two ways. If you need preaching, what, what should we do about that? Uh, number one, friend, keep yourselves under good preaching. Some of you are going to be at Stonegate for a season. And you're going to move on to other places and just prioritize this. Keep yourself under good preaching. Every one of us need that. We, we need to position ourselves under good, Jesus-exalting, gospel-soaked preaching. If you want a reason to make Sunday mornings a priority in your life, like every week we're, we're, we're here, here it is. We all desperately need to sit with God's people under God's word as it's preached and applied to our heart. You need that. I need that. We, we all need that. Like more than you need your next meal, you need that. More than your kids need that next game, they need that. To be under God's word with God's people as it's preached and applied to our heart. If you could just imagine someone looking at you and saying, hey, you probably want to like die loving Jesus, right? And you're like, yes, we, we all want that. Yes, I want to die loving Jesus. And they were to say, okay, well, if you were to make a plan for like how you would do that, what, what would be the things on that plan? On every one of our plans ought to be Sitting under consistently, like weekly, sitting under faithful, Jesus-exalting preaching. It is a means of grace in your life to keep your hope tethered to Jesus, to keep your faith tethered to Jesus. I need that. You need that. We all need that. Last night I was thinking about my 13-year-old self, which is a scary thing to do. And I was sitting right over here on this side of a little auditorium in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma. A guy stood up and preached Jesus, and Jesus saved me. I was thinking about me at 20 years old. I'm with a group of friends in Glorieta, New Mexico, and we're in this big building, and a guy has stood up, and he's preaching Jesus. And the Lord just met me there and took me to a whole new place of surrender. I, I just remember in that moment me looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, whatever you want, whenever you want it, I, I'm a yes to you. There's like no strings attached in this deal. It's like, God, what, whatever you want, I, my, my life is yours. Oh, God, 
totally changed the course of my life. This is what preaching does. This is what Paul means when he says it came with a demonstration of the Spirit and power. It can change your life. You need to consistently be under faithful preaching. Second application is, friend, I just want to encourage you to pray for preachers. Pray for them. I don't know what your Sunday morning rhythm looks like, but I would encourage you to to just put into your Sunday rhythm, I'm going to pray for the preachers around Stonegate. Why? Because you know what would be a tragedy if we started standing up here and out of just sort of routine telling you truths about God? With a heart that's not alive to these truths, with a heart that doesn't look at these truths as the most amazing things in the universe. That would be such a tragedy. No, a preacher needs to be able to look at these truths and to feel deep down in their bones, those things are amazing. Christ and him crucified. And then out of that, say those things to, to the people that come. Right? That, that's what needs to happen. And so pray for preachers around here. And pray for the preachers in our city. Wouldn't it be amazing if like every church in this area had pastors who these things were alive in them. Like their hearts were alive to the most amazing truths in the universe. And then they stood up and talked about those amazing truths with a heart just burning with these things. Be amazing. And so let's pray for preachers. Friend, you need preaching. Here's the second point I want to just point out from this text. You need preaching. Secondly, you need more than preaching. You need preaching. But you need more than preaching. Preaching proclaims the wisdom of God. That's what preaching is doing. And it proclaims the wisdom of God by holding up the crucified Christ. But this sort of introduces the problem of the text. If preaching presents the wisdom of God, the question this text sort of begs us to ask is, why do people see God's wisdom as foolishness? Why do people see God's wisdom, Christ and him crucified, as just ridiculous, as absurdity? Why is that? Why do you have 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18? The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Why is it folly? Why is it absurdity? Why do you have 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8? None of the rulers of this age understood this. None of them understood this wisdom from God. None of them understood Christ and him crucified. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Do you see the problem? Why don't perishing people see Jesus as the priceless treasure that he is? Why does Paul look at the cross and see the power of God, while the rulers of this age look at the cross and see the powerlessness of God? Why is that? And here is Paul's answer in the back half of chapter 2. Here's his answer. Because it takes the Spirit of God to reveal the wisdom of God. That's his answer. Here's why they don't understand it. Here's why they can't see it. Because it takes the Spirit of God to reveal the wisdom of God. Unless our blind eyes are open, Paul is saying, we'll never behold the crucified Christ as beautiful. It will never make sense to us. It will always seem like an absurdity to us. It will always seem foolish to us unless the Spirit of God reveals the wisdom of God. Paul is, in a sense, saying preaching the wisdom of God, Christ and him crucified, is like presenting a Rembrandt to a blind man. That's what it's doing. And you can preach about the beauty of the painting all you want. 
You can do it passionately. You can do it clearly. You can do all of those things, but there will be no beholding of the painting. There will be no awe at the painting. There will be no savoring. Why? Because he just can't see it as beautiful. He, he just can't see it. And this is Paul's point. You see it in verse 14. He says, the natural person, the natural person is the person without the Spirit of God. It's the person who the Spirit of God has not revealed these things to. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They're just all an absurdity to him. Christ and him crucified, are you serious? But what is the big deal about that? They're just folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually disearned. It doesn't matter how clearly you preach the crucified and risen Christ. It doesn't matter how long you preach the crucified and risen Christ. It doesn't matter how passionately you preach the crucified and risen Christ. A heart won't savor him if a heart can't see him. A heart won't behold him if a heart is blind to his beauty. Now, let me be clear. Paul's not saying that a natural person can't understand the sentences of the scriptures. Paul is not saying that a natural person, uh, you know, can't study the Bible and know a lot about God and about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and give you all sorts of facts about the person and work of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. They can do that, and they do that all the time. People who don't know the Lord have not had the Spirit of God open these things up to them know a ton about the Bible. They do that all the time. What Paul is saying is that unless the Spirit of God reveals the wisdom of God, they'll see nothing to savor in the Savior. That's what Paul is, is getting at here. They'll see nothing to behold as beautiful in the crucified and risen Christ. A friend of mine had a seminary professor it was his preaching professor who would take his whole class, the preaching class, out to a cemetery. And there in the cemetery, he would set up a pulpit. And there in the middle of the cemetery, he would have his class preach their best sermon. Right? So they're just preaching their heart out. And it's, it's on the best things, the most beautiful truths in the universe. The person and work of Jesus, Christ and him crucified. And then the seminary prof would look at them and say, hey, I want you to look around at these graves. This is the response you can expect from your best sermon. You preaching the most beautiful truths in the universe unless the spirit of God raises spiritually dead people. Unless the spirit of God reveals the beauty of the wisdom of God. That's Paul's point here. Yes, you need preaching, but you need more than preaching. You need the Spirit of God to do the revealing work, to reveal the wisdom of God. So Paul says in verse 12, now we have received not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. That's Paul saying that we need the Spirit of God to reveal the wisdom of God. You see it again in verse 10. These things, talking about all of this wisdom of God, Christ and Him crucified, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. It takes the Spirit of God to reveal the wisdom of God. Now, what should this truth produce in a human heart? I just want to finish with this. What should it produce in a human heart, in your heart? When you, when you think about this truth, it takes the Spirit of God to reveal the wisdom of God. It takes the Spirit of God to reveal the Son of God, Christ, and Him crucified. 
But what should that produce? Let me give you two things it should produce in our hearts. First, it should produce gratefulness. Gratefulness. Friend, if, you're, if you are a follower of Jesus, it's not because of your awesomeness. It's not because of your smarts. It's not because you just kind of put things together better than other people. It's not because your heart's somehow more open than other people. If you're a follower of Jesus, here's the reason why. The Spirit of God revealed the wisdom of God to you. That, that's why. And I love this passage because it gives a behind-the-curtain glimpse at all of that working itself out. Look, look at chapter 2, verse 7. Paul says, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. So he's saying, in preaching, that's what we're doing. We're imparting and we're holding up this secret wisdom of God. And then he says about this wisdom, uh, this wisdom which God decreed before the ages. So, so this wisdom that we're holding up, Christ and him crucified, God, God decreed, God planned that wisdom before the ages. And he says, for our glory. Church, for your glory. This is the wisdom of God that God planned before the ages. It, it is for your glory. For our glory. Now just, just think about this for a moment. It's just stunning to consider. Paul is saying here that before this universe that we inhabit was created, God hatched a plan. This plan to save rebellious sinners and bring them into his family forever through the death of his beloved son, Jesus. God hatched that plan before the ages. Before this universe existed. He, 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 he planned this plan before sin entered the world. This was not like a, oh, they did that, so now I guess I'll do that. No, it didn't work that way. This plan was hatched. This plan was planned before that first sin. Before your first sin or before your worst sin, the wisdom of God was set in motion. Before you were born, before you existed, he, he set his love upon you and he made a plan to save you from your sin through the death of his son, the sacrificial death of his son. Before there were galaxies, stars, mountains, oceans, he said, I, I love him. I, I love that one. I, I love her. And I'm going to reach down into that person's life, his life, her life. And I'm going to remove their blindness and I'm going to reveal the beauty of my son so that they can behold him and so they'll run to him and so they'll throw their faith at him. I'm going to do that for them. Just amazing to consider. Uh, last night I was staring at this text and I, I was just thinking about what, what this must have been like for the triune God. And I, I just was thinking and just dreaming about what, what was that like just before the ages, before any of this stuff, before you and I existed, before the, the mountains and the galaxies existed. This is the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit planning this. And God the Father, he looked at God the Son and, and looked at God the Spirit, and he said, um, hey, can I introduce you to Rodney? This is before the ages. This is before the, the galaxies came into being. Can I introduce you to, to Rodney? I know he doesn't exist yet, but let's, let's just look at him for a moment. Yeah, there he is, right, right there. And that guy right there, he's going to rebel against us. He's going to deny us. 
He's going to belittle us in a million different ways. He's going to rob us of glory. He is going to spit in our face without remorse. He's going to turn his back on us and live a a good part of his life with his back turned on us. But I love him. But I love him. And I have this amazing plan for him. Like, like I'm going to make a universe to amaze him. I'm going to make mountains and oceans and stars just to wow his heart. I'm going to make a thing like a steak for him to enjoy. I'm going to give him a wife one day and kids one day. And he's going to enjoy all of these things. And as he enjoys all of these things, he's actually going to be enjoying us in them. That's what he's going to do one day. But first, we're going to have to deal with his sins. So Jesus, I'm going to send you to live for him. And then I'm going to send you to a bloody cross, and there you're going to die in his place and for his sin. And then, uh, Holy Spirit, uh, Rodney's going to be born. Let me check my watch. Yeah, in 1979, a few years from now, he's going to be born. I'm going to bring him into existence. And there, a couple of thousand years after the death of Jesus, he's going to be sitting in that little auditorium at the age of 13 in the middle of nowhere, listening to a man preach. And and, and spirit, you're going to break into his life right over there in that seat. And you're going to rescue him. You're going to remove the blindness from his eyes. He's going to behold the glory of Jesus. And he's going to push all of his faith in with Jesus. And then Holy Spirit, he's going to be sitting in his house on February the 25th, 2003, last night. And he's going to be looking at this text. It's going to be about 11 p.m. And he's just going to be staring at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. And you're going to remind him again. You're going to show him what we were doing before all of this existed, before he existed. Before everything existed, before the galaxies existed. You're going to show him what we were doing, that we were making the plan that was going to involve his rescue, his salvation from sin, that we were making that plan before he ever was. You're going to show him again right there last night at 11 p.m., February 25th. You're going to show him again just how much we love him. We have always loved him, that we will love him forever. And I'm just sitting there staring at that last night, crying like a baby. Last night at 11, thinking about that text, this moment of God doing this for me. And and hear me on this. If you are in Christ, that is your story. That is your story. God has decreed this wisdom, planned this wisdom before the ages for your glory, for my glory, for our glory, for the church's glory. And isn't it amazing? This is God just looking at us this morning and saying, this is how much I love you. I've always loved you. I'll forever loved you. And here's what we're all doing. We start living our lives and it's Monday and we go over here looking for someone to love us and approve of us and accept us. And then it's Tuesday and we go over here looking for someone to love us and approve us and accept us. And then we go over here on Wednesday trying to find someone else to, to give us what our heart really wants. And God's saying, can you just listen to me say, I love you. Could you listen to me say that and hear that? And then as we listen to the Lord say, I love you, I've decreed this from the beginning, before the the ages, for your glory, our heart just explodes with gratitude toward God. God, thank you. 
Thank you, oh God. Produces gratefulness. And then lastly, prayerfulness. Produces prayerfulness. Stonegate, we want perishing people saved, don't we? I want that. I hope you want that. We want to see perishing people, people who are on their way to forever without God and everything is good. We want those perishing people to meet Jesus. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, we want you to meet Jesus. And this text reminds us, if we want perishing people saved, then we need more than what we can do. We need what only God can do. We need God to reveal God. That's what we need. We need the Holy Spirit to bust into our neighbor's heart to show them the beauty of Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit to break into our wayward sons and daughters' hearts, our wayward parents' hearts, our our wayward coworker, our wayward classmate, our wayward friend, so that they can behold the beauty of the crucified and, and risen Christ. That's that's what we want. That's what we need. And if this is what we need, it makes us desperate in prayer, doesn't it? It makes us plead in prayer, persist in prayer, asking God to do what only God can do for the Spirit of God to reveal the wisdom of God. So church, would you pray with me? I just want to give you a chance to do that very thing, to pour your heart out in prayer for perishing people. Maybe it's for that wayward son or daughter. For you just to plead with the Lord God. Would you reveal your wisdom to him, Christ and him crucified? Maybe it's for your wayward parents. You can pray for your one, that one person who's far from the Lord, that you're just, you're asking the Spirit to do its work, that the Spirit would reveal the beauty of Jesus. Just plead with the Lord for that. And this is what Jesus is doing for some of us this morning. He is opening our eyes for the first time to see glory and the beauty of Jesus, the crucified and risen Jesus. And if that's you, you can just respond to him right there where you are by throwing your life upon him in faith, by holding up your life and saying, Jesus, save me. I'm trusting in you, oh Jesus, save me. Just the best way you know how you can call out to the Lord. And for every one of us in the room, It's not just like we're dependent one time upon the Spirit to reveal to us the wisdom of God. We need it every day of our life. We need it right now. So we can just ask the Lord, God, would you keep showing me the beauty of Jesus? Would you bring my heart awake to these things? Make my heart alive to the biggest and beautiful, most beautiful things in the universe. God, would you do it? God, would you show me you? So Father, would you do that? Spirit, would you do that? Right now in this moment, oh God, would you? It's in your good name that we ask it.